Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. In this third series, we're going slightly off the beaten track. These 10 conversations will take us on a journey from the world of psychedelics, ecological grief and the self, to technobiophilia, leadership and how we might begin to recreate our identity as a species in the face of the unfolding climate crisis. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Sam Gandhi, a fantastic and fascinating chap that I met at Breaking Convention, at which he spoke about psychedelic biophilia, and I was really captivated by the insights he shared in his talk. Sam has a PhD in ecological science from the University of Aberdeen and an MRes in entomology from Imperial College London. He has a lifelong interest in nature and wildlife and has been fortunate enough to conduct field research in various parts of the world, including the UK, Kefalonia, Almeria, Texas, the Peruvian Amazon, Vietnam and Ethiopia. He has experience of working in the psychedelic field, including as a scientific assistant to the director of the Beckley Foundation, and is at the present time a collaborator with the Psychedelic Research Group at Imperial College London. He's written papers, book chapters, articles, and spoken at conferences and festivals on psychedelics, and he is fascinated by their potential to benefit human life. Sam has a particular research interest in the intersection of two of his big passions, nature and psychedelics and the capacity of psychedelics to reconnect our increasingly disconnected species to the natural world for the betterment of humanity and the biosphere at large. So thank you very much for joining me today. I would like to start by asking you a very big question, and that question is, where do you think we're headed as a species? So I think... If we carry on business as usual, um, we are we are in big trouble. Um, so earlier in this earlier this year, the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. So this was a huge assessment. Um, I think by about 145 world experts from 50 different countries took three years to complete and look back at 50 years worth of data so it's the most comprehensive assessment of its kind ever undertaken the news from it was not good um the rates of eco ecological degradation and biodiversity loss are unprecedented at any time in human history and they are accelerating and the basic conclusion of this assessment was that without a sort of global ecological mobilization kind of on the scale of world war ii we're we're in deep deep trouble uh, as a species as a civilization um so this kind of adds increasing evidence to the already sort of well-established view that we are in and orchestrating a sixth mass extinction event uh single-handedly uh, on our part which is yeah fairly impressive really so uh, the overall picture looking forward is, is from where I'm standing, is, is not particularly positive right at this present time. Mm. And in terms of, because we're talking about a scale that is almost unimaginable for us to get our heads around, um, given that you've been studying this in depth, um, both through your research and then traveling and meeting people in different parts of the world, how do you integrate this knowledge with the way in which you live your life? Um, yeah, so good question. I think in a, a few different ways. So, I mean, my, um, I've always been very nature, nature centric and orientated. So I, my background, my PhD, um, looked at soil degradation and its regeneration, uh, in Ethiopia and the role of termites so that's a kind of that falls under the umbrella of the science of ecological restoration and i see this as like a very important branch of 
of re of science now uh, applied science like if we kind of want a a future and a pleasant uh, future on this planet we we really need to start sustainability is not not enough we need to actively be regenerating and restoring um, our ecosystems um, and through that obviously nature benefits but through the greater resilience the ecological resilience environmental resilience that comes through that uh, we, we benefit so it's kind of a win-win um, so that's sort of partly my sort of background uh, in terms of academic background. I support a number of different organisations um, like uh, Cool Earth are a, a really interesting organisation. So they're basically they're buying up tracts of rainforests where indigenous people mm. live and it's kind of in terms of bang for your buck it's a really good organization to support because they keep um they keep areas of of forest intact so that has a few benefits it keeps carbon locked up that would otherwise be uh yeah sort of in the atmosphere contributing to climate change it preserves the biodiversity of these areas and it also preserves the livelihoods of these indigenous people and that's interesting as well because that report i i mentioned before one of the the really interesting and few positive findings of it was that areas of land inhabited and sort of managed by indigenous people were the only areas inhabited by humans not undergoing ecological degradation there was mm -hmm. even a study earlier this year that found that areas inhabited by indigenous people can sometimes harbour greater biodiversity than equivalent protected areas. Isn't that extraordinary that because we have I think we have this narrative now in, in many parts of the world where we're just starting to wake up to the severity of the situation. We have this narrative that humans are bad and that we have failed in our stewardship of nature. And yet when you look at the research around how there is the potential for great partnership um, and for a regenerative relationship between humans and our environments, especially when looking at the ways in which indigenous groups are so wise and um, able to do a lot of the stuff that we now so badly need to do at scale. Do you think there's space there for us to kind of rewrite the narrative as humans being bad for the environment and something more, more positive that we could... I don't know, used to spur us on to make the changes that we need to? Yeah, no, I, I, I think so. Um, so, I mean, one of, the, one of the sort of things I'm interested in here, just to use a bit of an example, um, in the UK is, is like bringing back, reintroducing beavers, because beavers are very powerful ecosystem engineers. Like, they're, they were part of our landscape till about 400 years ago, and, like, they, they have this huge effect on their surrounding environment that goes far beyond them as individuals that benefit mm -hmm. and sort of affects many other different for like species and humans have have that effect too um but we can use our like we're a very powerful species and we're a very intelligent resourceful species and we can absolutely um play a play a fundamental and very like uh important role in actively regenerating and restoring degraded uh, landscapes and ecosystems and there are many case studies to to show this so yeah absolutely I, I think we can play a a more positive role th than we are maybe playing as a whole and I also think that you know eco-anxiety as a as a as an illness as a mental illness and nature deficit disorder and mm -hmm. all these new conditions linked to degradation of the environment are on the rise and I think by actively restoring nature and regenerating it, I think it can be also a psychologically healing act as well as good intrinsically um, itself. Mm, that's fascinating. It's funny, as you're saying this, I was, um, it's reminded me of uh, a couple of things I picked up in a podcast I was listening to earlier today. And um, two of the things that they were talking about, one is that we have devised modern civilizations so that humans generally extract from the environment and don't then put nutrients back in, unless we're doing it, you know, through fertilizers, natural or otherwise. But actually, our bodies don't go back into the soil, they're kind of preserved or segregated, I suppose, in a sense. 
Times. And there was um, there's a place in Washington, D.C. I forget the name of the startup, but it's basically been legalized for the first time this year. Um, the process of putting a body back into its own composting heap and then giving the, the humus to the relatives so they can put it underneath their favourite plant or go and take it to a beloved forest. So to actually bring our bodies back into the equation so we're giving something um, giving something back. I mean, what do you think about that? Because it's probably quite a radical idea in modern society. Um, yeah, well, I think that's kind of that's sort of quite an interesting idea in the sense of yeah being connected with the earth and cycles like i know there's been other sort of startups of where you kind of i think well actually i think it involved cremation but then you have your ashes put in a biodegradable pot with a tree seed in um and then from from that yeah a new tree will, will grow and also these fungal mycelium soup things you wear to kind of facilitate being broken down by by fungi um so um yeah no i think it's sort of like i think we've there's a few different things kind of going on there and that there's that we definitely have a societal taboo against death and and thinking about it and we also we're quite well we're increasingly disconnected from from nature um and from the planet cycles as well in some in some ways so it's interesting something like that kind of makes you address uh and confront both of those both of those issues at, at once mm. it's maybe you think also of your connection with imperial college london because i know that one of the things if we think about the earth for instance as the kind of womb and tomb of life that we spring from it and then we go back to it and our fear of death and our, our desire to postpone the inevitable um, and the work that I know that Imperial College London does around psychedelic research and how often um, psilocybin trials are used to help people towards the end of their lives to confront their own mortality and hopefully to alleviate the anxiety that can come with that and the existential questions and fear that arises from that. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with the psychedelic research group and some of the interesting things that you encountered in that. So firstly, I think the, that, that kind of research using psilocybin to ease existential distress and anxiety in the terminally ill is very important. Um, like the strength of the scientific evidence to support the effectiveness of psilocybin for that are very strong and they're, they're stronger than anything else that psychedelics have, have yet been tested for. So I see that as really important because we don't have any really effective therapies for people who, who are facing their mortality you know we numb the the the, the sort of physical the, the physical pain of people but the existential spiritual uh, needs of people have kind of being overlooked or ignored and this is a way to confront that mm. but my particular collaboration with the imperial uh, group centers on the capacity of psychedelics to uh, connect us or reconnect us to nature um and the implications of that so and so that's kind of a kind of cutting edge area of research right now there's been a few correlative studies and uh robin carhart harris who's the sort of head of the psychedelic group a few years ago he published with a colleague um uh, the first kind of perspective before and after uh, research showing that psilocybin can cause this increase in in nature relatedness which is which is can be otherwise considered uh, one's self-identification with nature. So the degree to which you see yourself as part of nature. And this is really important for a few reasons, because it, it firstly, it uh, alone it is associated with many measures of psychological health and well-being. So enhanced life satisfaction life meaning vitality positive effect enhanced functioning at the state and trait level so it comes with uh, decreased anxiety it comes with um, quite a few different benefits um, it also acts as a mediator for some of the benefits one receives for at when actually spending time in nature as well mm. particularly positive effect and importantly and relevant to this discussion like it's also the strongest if not the single strongest psychological predictor of pro-environmental behavior mm. and attitudes so i see increasing 
nature relatedness or connection right now as being something of utmost importance both both for the individual and for the for the planet for the biosphere and it seems from the evidence coming in that psychedelics uh can increase this robustly and an an enduring sense as well so long term it's not some kind of fleeting uh thing so and yeah we've just actually submitted a paper on this using some of imperial's uh psychedelic survey data but because that's unpublished i can't really uh say anything more about that at this time as you know when it's going to come out (laughs) it's very hard to tell with journals because each just got their own Mm. sort of time trajectory in terms of reviewing and publication so I mean, I can say that it will hopefully, if and when it is published, add um, a good body of sort of evidence and sort of expand this this frontier and move it forward, um, hopefully. So it's quite, yeah, it's quite exciting uh, to be involved with it. It's interesting because um, one of the things that you hear people talking about quite a lot, or at least um, in some of the circles that I'm connected with, is the desire for people to go off to far-flung places to do things like um, iboga ceremonies or ayahuasca ceremonies or San Pedro ceremonies or any number of more exotic um, non-native to Europe plants and I think one of the things that I find really difficult about that is that in the one breath people are wanting to commune with nature and in the other breath many of them are then going in planes which I do too so I, <clears throat> I recognize the difficulty here but then they're going in planes to places that are very far away and then having these experiences and jetting back. And I wonder if we tend to um, exalt and make more interesting that which is further from our everyday experience. And yet in some of the research that I've read, when you're talking about this this phenomenon of nature relatedness, it's actually psilocybin, which provides the highest, most robust experience of that specific thing over and above the effects of, for instance, ayahuasca or iboga or San Pedro. What are your thoughts about that? Why? Yeah. Do you want to unpack some of that? So, well, firstly, sort of at this time, like the, the bulk of psychedelic research has been with psilocybin. You know, it's the current, mm-hmm. definitely the main focus right now. You know, there's been a bit of a, a bit on ayahuasca and LSD and these other things, but psilocybin is very much hogging the limelight and advancing the research is the main sort of thing of focus so that's partly the research is is, that's partly a reflection of that uh the the fact that it's sort of the central focus um i know my yeah a colleague of mine friend david luke he did sort of an early survey kind of looking at the sort of nature connection potential of the different psychedelics and psilocybin mushrooms definitely came top of the pile uh, but again that might partly reflect that they're, they're one of the more commonly used of the psychedelics mm. as well so we have to sort of take that into account um, but uh, yeah I think to be you know to keep in mind is you know the, the psilocybin mushrooms they are our native indigenous psychedelic you know uh, obviously iboga is central africa uh, ayahuasca is a plant of the amazon and they have obviously mushrooms as well in central america but we have our own native uh, psilocybe mushrooms here on our island so i kind of see them as our kind of indigenous psychedelic and yeah from the research coming in like um psilocybin alone is like has has many different facets and potential uh aspects of like beneficial aspects when when used used with care Mm. what are some of the ways in which you find psilocybin being most um unexpected in terms of how it changes people's traits and states or that maybe others who are not so familiar with the research might find unexpected and surprising so yeah well just coming to mind actually this is more sort of uh focused on the um the use of psilocybin to treat existential anxiety and um in terminally ill cancer patients uh, so yeah there was there was two very rigorous uh, high profile studies conducted by johns hopkins and new york university and published a few years ago uh phase two studies and they it was they used quite a rigorous placebo controlled uh design and it was interesting hearing the accounts of people undergoing this this research and some of the accounts from people at Imperial as well. It's sort of um, even, you know, I think the, the, the bulk of people 
participants in this research were they were identified as being atheist or or non-religious non-spiritual mm-hmm. yet the descriptions of the experiences they had under psilocybin were wildly spiritual uh, and very deep and transformative so even people like the the, the power of those experiences is like it has a depth that it transcends the need to have faith in anything at all if that makes sense like people feel like they really come away feeling like they've touched some something deeper uh, even if that deeper is a part of them that they had not previously fathomed existed mm. like through that and acknowledging that um, it sort of people come away with more more levity and they have a different uh, and often more sort of solid uh, perspective on on life. It, ch- it changes how one perceives and navigates their their life subsequent life experience, and it can be very uh, very useful and therapeutic if one is faced with a terminal diagnosis. In, in particular, it seems that the psychedelic therapy really targets that. Um, in particular, mm. just on the nature connection side of it, I've spoken to a few people now who. Um, who even after a single psychedelic experience, they've been turned on to nature in a very big way. And what's interesting about some of these people who I've spoken to is that previous to this, they they didn't really identify with nature in any profound way. And so this is what I find interesting in the sense that, you know, we think from the research... Uh, it seems your your nature connection in later life, your degree of nature connection, is it hinges partly on your childhood exposure to nature. So where you've grown up has a has an impact on that. Mm. Not everyone is fortunate enough to have access to green spaces and, and nature on their doorstep. And so, and if you haven't, you may not have developed that connection to nature uh, to to your loss and to its loss as well. Because, you know, you're not going to gain the benefits of that and you're certainly probably not going to be connected to it and then want to protect or conserve it through that lack of connection. Mm. What seems to happen, and this is only kind of anecdotal at the present time, it seems that people who have rate low in in nature connectedness or don't have much of a connection, like a, a psychedelic experience can give people this sort of, yeah, this powerful perspective shift on how they view themselves and and sort of how they relate to to the rest of life and and nature and and the sort of the perspective shift that that engenders really stays with people in a lasting enduring way that's that's an important point this isn't some fleeting thing it's a, a perspective shift that that really stays with people i find it fascinating when um when people talk about this desire for transcendence or for a connection with something bigger that often we think that it's something which is very cosmic and outside there and out in the universe and actually what we find is that our desire for connection roots us back firmly into place um onto this beautiful planet i was reading today about the um the depth of um well how far down you can find life in the earth and how it's essentially a huge universe just literally beneath our feet and it's so funny because we don't often think about that when we're walking along a path or on the roads that there's just you know, miles and miles of living uh, community beneath where we walk, where we drive, where we eat and play. Um, what are some of the ways in which you found that psychedelic experiences have challenged people's ideas about belonging and spirituality? Um, Chica, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to need. I'm going to need to have a bit more of a think about that. Um, so I'm kind of thinking that sometimes people come into this, so I'm thinking of people that I know who have previously been raised maybe in a very religious setting, monotheistic setting, and they, they have this very specific idea about, you know, this. some people call it sky god religions, where it's about an eternity beyond the flesh, that we have this dualistic idea. Yeah, I've read a few sort of accounts, actually, of people who had... Um, yeah, you know, religious beliefs prior to going into their psychedelic uh, sessions and then sort of, yeah, it kind of very much shaking off, well, the shackles of their faith, to put it bluntly. Um, but also people being being liberated uh, because of that as well. Or other people who may have been, uh, had a, 
atheistic uh, belief on on what God was to them, having through psychedelics a pantheistic uh, opening. So it's like, oh, actually, God slash nature or the universe are one and the same thing. They're two halves of the same coin, or they're just the same coin. There is no mm. division. There's not a, a higher sort of entity looking down at us and judging us for all our little actions. Like this is all. It's all happening right now here, and we're a part of it. Um, so, but then you, and then you go the other way, and then you hear accounts of uh people who you know were were staunch atheists or or non-spiritual people and they they feel they find a a deeper connection to something bigger Mm. uh bigger than than themselves so yeah it's quite it can kind of go a number of different ways (laughs) depending on what one takes with them into those into those sessions i think Mm. and so i'm wondering what you make of this sort of renewed desire for people to experience um, psychedelic journeys or trips or rituals and ceremony in safe settings, because this is something that's been underground and it's been there for a very long time, but the media has now kind of warmed back to the idea of maybe writing about and giving airtime to um, psychedelic retreats, etc. And and it's something which I think people are feeling more able to discuss freely and share in more of a public domain. Um, what do you think is happening there? Um, yeah, no, I think it's I think it's true. I mean, I think uh, the, the media is playing a definite. So there's a few things all happening at the same time. So firstly, yes, mm. the media is is much more receptive and positive when it comes to reporting on psychedelic research and other things like the mad uh reefer madness style hysteria (laughs) of the 60s is is long gone uh which is a good thing you know uh i mean maybe sometimes this can be almost a bit too evangelical and but but like overall i think things are much more balanced now than they used to be uh so that's one thing secondly i think the internet is playing a really important role like it didn't mm. obviously previously in the in the 60s when it didn't really exist so um yeah you know so those john the 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 existential anxiety cancer psilocybin studies that i mentioned earlier i think a few sort of high profile online uh, magazines reported on those studies and apparently there are between those articles there were a billion hits so that doesn't factor for people who've read the same uh, the same news in different on different platforms, but it gives an impression of like the amount of of interest and also that people have access that many people have access to that information as well. So I think the uh, yeah, like a kind of like mycelial web, the internet is connecting us all, and sort of we've got all this information now at our fingertips. So people are more the people are kind of connecting uh, with these movements and with like their fellow like-minded people. And it's easier to find resources and guides and uh, experienced people and possible retreat avenues for retreats and stuff. Mm. Awareness is definitely, definitely spreading uh, through that uh, medium. Um, and then also I think an important thing not to, uh, in any way neglect is now is the scientific research that's going on um the so that the the standards of science have come on quite a long way since the 50s 60s and i think that people are sort of yeah looking at these studies and and sort of taking them seriously and that's kind of i think fanning the flames of the the decriminalization movements now that are kind of popping up in the us Mm. and and elsewhere like it was interesting in oakland when the council there unanimously voted to decriminalize organic psychedelics it was the people who gave testimonies uh, as to why they thought that was a was a positive step they kind of used a mixture of personal transformative stories and also referred to the scientific uh, research so it was a mixture of subjective benefit and more objective evidence Mm, feeling and fact exactly and Mm. both definitely have their their place i think Mm. so so i think that's there's a there's a sort of entourage effect of those different things playing out together i think like i can hear your your lovely parrot in the background (laughs) 
it's so nice. What's his name? I put him upstairs to kind of, because <laughs> he's outside the door looking at me, making noise for attention. I love it. What's his name? George. George the Parrot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wonder, well, let's talk about George the Parrot for a bit, but um, I wonder with, um, with people's uh, experience of psychedelics, how it changes the ways in which they relate to other beings, because... I've definitely noticed that um, when I've had experiences that connect me back to nature, I perceive personhood in other beings so much more easily than when I've been living in a city for a long time. Um, and I imagine when you're living with other beings, you probably attune to that as well. You can't help but attune to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think so. It's interesting. There are so many tales of actual of, of people actually being under the influence of psychedelics and um, animals uh, behaving really quite differently, including mm. wild animals as well. Animals very suspiciously seem to lose their fear uh, of of humans while, while they're in that state um, a lot. And it sounds a little bit kooky, but I know there's so many. So many first-hand account, uh, first-hand accounts of people um, I, I know, and otherwise like rational, skeptical people. <laughs> but no, I do think I think yeah, when you kind of the filters, the filters on your you know brain sort of come down when you're under the influence of these things. So you do, you do sort of like pay attention to things and to little details around you that we, you would otherwise maybe miss, or mm. your brain would kind of overlook. Um, you know, like an, a sort of our brains are sort of they partly operate in this reality by you know they're they're taking it's take always it's taking to be an efficient organ it's it's taking shortcuts when it can and partly what the brain does is it projects what it thinks is out there quote unquote even though technically it's all in here it's all in our heads mm. it, it projects what it thinks is there based on its prior experiences and expectations. And that so that takes away some of the processing uh, power sort of re- re- required for sentience. But when you when you're on a big a high dose of a psychedelic, that sort of projection filtering mechanism becomes a bit sort of scrambled. So you end up taking um, more raw, unedited, uncensored data in. Um, there's this fascinating test. Uh, and it sounds it's quite simple, sounds a bit of a crude test, but it's quite <laughs> revealing. And all it is, is a it's a white mask rotating. Mm. And when you're sober, um, you can't tell whether this mask is facing towards you or facing away from you, whether it's con- concave or convex. But when you're under a psychedelic, you can see it. You can see if it's looking head on or if it's looking away from you. And schizophrenics can also see that. And that's what that's sort of indicating is that sort of like filtering mechanism, that projection mechanism of what the brain thinks is there is being disrupted and taken down. So you're actually, interestingly, getting a more objective picture of what's actually going on. That's fascinating. That's so fascinating. It's interesting to think that because, you know, often people will say, you know, on psychedelics, you're opening your mind. A lot of people, if you have a high enough dose, have very synesthetic experiences where senses start to blend. And we somehow think that that's, well, an altered state in as much as it's not something that we experience every day. And yet we forget that every day we're living in an altered state by the by virtue of the fact that our systems are filtering constantly in order to live with greater ease. Um, and yet we've got these kind of framings sort of in a way that suits us, but doesn't necessarily reflect reality. Yeah. Mm. So I have another question. I kind of want to go down a little bit of a, um, I suppose, a different route. So a friend of mine was recently reading a sci-fi book that's set in the future. And he was talking about how the idea in this book is that kind of like this Alan Wattsian idea that as an apple tree apples, so an earth peoples, so with a the progeny of the earth and we're um, sentient in the way that humans are sentient and that that creates a certain kind of consciousness that otherwise wouldn't exist if we weren't here. So we're able to experience ourselves and ourselves as a part of nature in a way that otherwise wouldn't wouldn't exist. Anyway, and it talks about this idea and in the book they take it further and they say that the humans are the ones which are basically the seeds of the earth that go off and populate other planets. And I don't want to necessarily take it that far but I do want to ask, what are your thoughts about 
our role in trying to use the networks available to us, the networks of people, the networks of the internet, um, their parallels with mycelial networks, to get ourselves out of this extraordinary mess that we find ourselves in with a climate crisis? That's a kind of, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I no, I think that potential is there, but I don't, if I'm honest, see it happening. Um, I used to be, I think, more, I think I am greatly positive and optimistic overall, but given the way things are playing out now and, and human nature, unfortunately, from what I know of it in some facets, like, I don't know if, basically we we have an academic understanding of what we're doing to the planet you know it's beyond doubt that that we are changing things and changing things badly on a global scale in many different ways but the knowledge of that is not it's not sufficient to catalyze the change at the necessary speed or scale it needs to to make a difference and so that's pretty worrying and i i see this partly this is a kind of a side effect of our profound disconnection from nature it's one of the great tragedies uh so tragedies or the great negatives of our very successful materialistic technological civilization is our disconnect from nature and we know from the research that as your as your connection to nature goes up as a side effect your concern for it goes up as well your desire to protect and preserve it um but um yeah we sort of like we do need a fundamental shift in how we relate uh to the planet in order to in better preserve it and be stewards of it um because right now we're we're not really or most of us aren't aren't really living up to that but you know i don't want to get on a soapbox i'm i'm complicit i've burnt fossil fuels and thrown away plastic and you know i'm i'm like far from faultless and i'm my very presence here is having a, a negative impact on stuff so you know it's hard because we're all kind of complicit but we need it we need a huge overhaul in um basically in capitalism in the current political system it's like a serious undertaking i just don't see like our society in terms of like the sort of the short-term economic gain model and the current political model it's just not compatible with a long-term ecologically bright future so it needs i mean it may i don't think it's even repairable it just needs tearing down and something else building up in its place which doesn't sound sort of particularly um pleasant but you know it, i would like it personally if there were like much more stricter laws on ecocide and damage mm. to the environment that would be a priority we need to move past this model of sustainability and be much more regeneration restoration focused so instead of investing billions into the military and other other things let's reinvest that money into statewide nationwide global ecological restoration regeneration products um long-term viability and sustainability needs to supplant this short-term economic uh gain which is really sort of like uh a massive thorn in the side of, of like moving forward in a good way and uh yeah i think we we need to kind of re-establish our ever uh growing disconnect from from nature unless we address that root psychological connection i don't i don't see things as likely to radically change okay so Here's another question for you. Um, given that, as you say, the, the scale and speed at which we need to change does not look particularly promising in terms of the actions currently being undertaken, um, what can those of us who are worried about this do to change our lives so that we are living more resiliently in 10 years? Um, does that look like perhaps moving out to the country if possible and learning permaculture and creating smaller communities and microgrids of food and energy. Um, what do you think helps at this point that we can do so that we don't become completely mired down with, with despair and so that we create a sort of a possible future that's maybe worth living? Well, I, I mean, I think those things you listed there, like it seems we know from sort of research that's been done that these smaller community permaculture projects, even in the big cities, actually, where you get these sort of um, community 
gardening allotment projects that the quality of their of the soil there um can be excellent like certainly much superior to soil under intensive agriculture the overall sort of viability and uh, health of soil is, is a great concern because obviously like a large all our terrestrial food production hinges on that so yeah there is something like there's as well as this disconnect from nature there, there's this kind of disconnect from community you know loneliness um is increasing suicide rates are like the leading cause of death in in males i think under 50 mm. um the dep depression is considered by the world health organization the leading cause of disability worldwide and it's growing so and i think this hinge this is more hinged towards to do sort of with disconnection from from self and from others so it's kind of not so macro level disconnection as that from from nature but it is another form of disconnect mm. so yeah and kind of like i think the suggestions you made are good i think getting involved with like doing some actual uh, ecological restoration activities and this doesn't have to be a big thing so the simple act of planting a tree the simple act of like if you've not got much space having a little few plant pots or having a few window boxes and planting some wild flowers in there um, you will provide a lot of food uh, for pollinators and for bees so insects and pollinators in general um, and our native bees are in decline in the UK uh, along with, with most of our our insects and there's like following the uh, second world war we lost like 97 percent of our wildflower meadows and Oof. following the war they, they those meadows never were never replanted or anything so yeah that we've sort of like we can all do um a little bit i think it's important to sort of like you know i think we can get a bit depressed if we kind of like keep sort of like banging our head against the wall that is the bigger picture uh to a degree so i think we sort of like we can work on on doing our bit and being part of local networks and communities that are uh, making a positive contribution and there's many different ways to i think make a positive contribution it's not a one-size-fits-all um approach here mm. but um yeah it's a sad thing that we can't if we carry on business as usual business business as usual is not only not really a viable option but it's a big part of the problem to begin with and if we if we carry on business as usual consuming the way we do um our current our current approach our current sort of economic growth is essentially modeled on a cancer cell in terms of its infinite growth mm. on a planet of finite resources and you can see that that's not really going to work out in the long term um so we need a we need a different system kind of overhaul i think part of what makes things a bit uh a bit hard is the, is the brains that we've kind of inherited from our evolution so you know most species including our species our paleolithic kind of ancestors like are we have brains that are programmed to respond to very short-term threats to our existence so you mm. know like a saber-toothed cat or whatever else predator out there that could kill us and then our brain sort of jumps into action and flight or fight kicks in like when we're dealing with these kind of more sort of um opaque and long-term threats to our existence it doesn't trigger this same uh flight or fight response so in to, to most people or to many people so we mistakenly view these things as not as not a threat to us mm. because they seem far off or not really in plain sight and that's uh, that's unfortunate and it doesn't rid us of the, the, the risk that those things may pose. Mm. It's interesting because I know that, um, you know, recently with the, the floods in Venice, um, when we start looking, especially in the global north, when we start looking at the impact of worsening climate and extreme weather events on beloved landmarks, then suddenly we realise that we're not infallible as we may think that we are and I think that sense of um, or for instance the floods in the UK that are getting ever worse or the, the fires in California you know I think we're getting to the point where the immediacy of 
the crisis and its implications is really starting to hit. So the fact that this is already on our doorsteps, that we can't ignore it anymore. Um, and yet it might be too late to act to save many of these places. You know, the sea levels are going to continue to rise, even if we stop all fossil fuel consumption this very moment. And so you think, well, you know, what it, what's, what's the balance there between, I don't know, how much are we willing to lose before we act on the level that we need to act? Yeah, well, that's a that's a good question. Um, mm. Knowing from what I, my suspicions are probably quite a lot, yeah. given what I know of human nature. Like, I do have this weird sinking feeling. Like, we're, we're certainly capable of, like, you know, big change very radically. Like, mm. the the ozone layer uh, damage is a, is a good example of that. You know, we we identified that like CFC certain sort of flora. Um, chlorinated uh, compounds using refrigeration and stuff were, were degrading and damaging the ozone layer. And we identified that problem. And as a global sort of civilization, we took kind of rapid measures to uh, stop that. And we know now that the ozone layer is, you know, it's, it's uh, rebounded uh, mm. following our actions there. So, you know, we are capable of quick, rapid, effective Action. But that has to come from the top down, right? Because that was legislation that was was put into place to, to enable that transformation. This is it. I think it's going to need to be a um, a top down uh, thing. But I wonder. I mean, who knows how it's going to play out? But it may be that you know there might need to be some big, uh, some some large scale negative uh, impacts before it incites us to sort of act on a on a, a large scale to motivate mm. that that change mm. yeah i think you might be right and i wonder i wonder what that means in terms of preparing ourselves i know that extinction rebellion for instance are doing lots of interesting work around how to deal non-violently with expressing emotions that rise up in relationship to relating authentically with others and things that mean that well that hopefully are preparing us for greater resilience in the face of difficult times and I wonder how much psychedelics could have a role to play in in helping us find that psychological and emotional resilience to face things that that may well be very difficult I think they definitely could um it's yeah I remember Gail Bradbrook sort of spoke about this which actually there was a mm. clip of her speaking about this at the ayahuasca conference in Spain earlier in the year that was that was interesting and in that you know, um, part of the research, one of my friends, uh, Dr. Roz Watts at Imperial, she found that psilocybin seems to sort of um, work therapeutically. I mean, there's a few things going on, but it, it facilitates connection, uh, as we've been discussing. So connection in a broad sense to core self, to other people and to the world at large, but also acceptance of what would be maybe considered unpleasant emotional states. So rather than numbing you to things you don't want to sort of like deal with, it kind of brings them into the fore and sort of confront, sort of like confronts you with them to process and go through. So yeah, part of the uh, yeah part of the uh, the thing I think with with the ecological crisis is is the acceptance that it is going on, like feeling that and 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 grieving for that destruction and loss. You know, we need to be aware of it. I don't think numbing, uh, numbing it is is going to sort of like solve anything really. Mm. From a personal perspective, do you find that you kind of like a wave? I guess that you come in and out of that grief. Yeah, like for me in in person. I mean, I'm I'm genuinely like I, you know I'm I'm a lover of life. Like mm. overall, like I'm really grateful just to be here, having having this experience of, of being alive on this planet. And yeah, no, I, you know, I am sad that the, the way things are playing out, but like part of me, unfortunately seems part of it seems to be inevitable. Um, and the other part is like, there are lots of other, I try and put my energy into like positive proactive things rather than dwelling uh, too much on, on the negatives, you know, because there's like other good stuff, proactive, positive stuff that we can be doing with our, with our time. Mm. Also, we don't live very long. And I think like <laughs> you want to be experiencing your fair share of joy and connection and all, all the good stuff really, um, as, as well, while being acknowledging that there's, there's, there's bad stuff. 
I love that perspective. So um, before I move to the to the last question, I'm kind of curious, what do you what do you find your joys in? Okay, so much so joy for me. So so definitely nature. Um, that's been a consistent and constant source of 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 joy and connection. Like since you know my my whole life. Um, knowledge, hunger for knowledge, finding out new things. Mm. Uh, the things that interest me in particular like that brings me uh meaning and purpose um uh, and working on things that i enjoy working on and um yeah writing is is something that i like to do um in different contexts and also yeah connecting with people connecting with with good people um as well that that brings me joy um so i don't feel like i'm lacking in in joy or or connection really i've got there's a, on a few different fronts i'm sort of like cultivating that i i think that makes me happy to hear so on that note then um i'd like to close by asking you what one insight or piece of advice would you give to anyone listening um god you've asked you've asked some good good put me on the spot questions <laughs> Uh, okay well if anything let's go back to the to the nature connection stuff so i would encourage anyone listening to this um make make some time for for nature um there was a recent study and it was a very it was a very large sample size so we can kind of have a good good amount of trust that the that the data is pretty solid and it found that spending two hours in nature a week um, has profound effects on your your health and your sort of longevity and it doesn't matter if you get those two hours in one go it doesn't matter if the two hours are spread about across the whole week it doesn't matter if you're actually exercising in nature or if you're just sitting in it it doesn't matter if you're in pristine wilderness or just an urban green space with a few trees um, it still has this restorative effect so find whatever gives you joy outside whether it be like gardening or running or walking or trekking or, or beekeeping or biking or sailing or whatever activities pull your attention and desire to be getting out there interfacing and interacting with with nature in some way um it will and you know combine that if you can with your friends and family so you've got that added human connection as well um because it will do you tremendous good um and yeah if we want if we want to keep enjoying yeah if we want to sort of like um preserve and and hopefully restore nature moving forward that that connection to nature that's facilitated by actively interfacing with it uh, is also dependent on us getting out into it so that's that's what i would say thank you for listening to the hive podcast with me natalina high to find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalinahigh.com forward slash the hive podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag hive podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.